Welcome to Role Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 42 Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, Second Edition. Okay, so for the record, most folks would probably refer to today's topic as D&D 2nd Edition, but since it was called Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, or AD&D at the time, that's how we're going to title it for today's episode. Yeah, I know, it's semantics, but I wanted to take a second to clarify before I get all the ats after the episode. Now, if you'll think back a bit, the last time we talked about Dungeons and Dragons, we did an episode on the AD&D D&D split and discussed what is now known as First Edition. For the record, that episode is now available in the archives, so check it out wherever you got this show. This week, let's get into Second Edition. So, in our AD&D D&D split episode, we discussed the fact that TSR had developed AD&D as a next level system for gamers with the D&D boxes being for the newer gamer or the gamer who wanted a more simplistic style of play. AD&D was always designed to be for the gamer who wanted more rules, more characters, and more options. Second edition would bring all of that to a level we'd never seen before. So by 1987, the D&D brand had been around for more than a decade. The first edition of AD&D had been around for about 10 years and had expanded to a rather large line of books that gamers around the world had been absolutely devouring. Now, when you've been around that long and have published that much material, there can tend to be an overwhelming amount of rules and supplemental rules and character stuff. So the idea was to revamp the system, with the plan being to make sure the most popular rules and classes and things like that were included, while dropping some of the less popular ideas from the published product. Or at least that was Gary Gygax's reported original idea. See, things changed a little bit on the way to second edition. First off, while David Zeb Cook was leading his team of designers to work up second edition, first edition kept publishing material. Zeb found himself in a position where some of this newer material was proving to be popular, like Unearthed Arcana and Oriental Adventures, along with material that had been appearing in Dragon Magazine. This meant the simplification of AD&D was going to have to be rethought. We'll get to that later on. In 1989, Zeb and his team's hard work paid off with the release of the AD&D 2nd Edition Core Rulebooks. The player's handbook was originally designed to be backwards compatible with 1st edition. The major difference is that this edition of the book was designed to be more streamlined than the proverbial cornucopia of 1st edition information that was out there. This edition also simplified the rules, with the intention to make it easier to find everything you needed to run your character and for the DM to be able to quickly find the things he needed to make game rulings. In terms of character classes, this edition had the Fighter, Paladin, Ranger, Wizard, Cleric, Druid, Thief, and Bard. For the most part, the classes were pretty much presented the same way they had been in 1st edition, just with the information simplified. Now, the Bard was a new add to the Player's Handbook for 2nd edition, but it had been a fairly staple character once it had been presented back in 1st edition. The rules were codified and standardized, and the Bard as we know it was PHB official. 
However, with all the ads and positives that came along, the assassin and the monk were dropped from the player's handbook. We'd see them come back later, but we'll get to that in a few. We also saw half-orcs removed from the player's handbook, though I should note again that their departure from the game wouldn't last long. Again, later supplements, some of which we'll hit on later, brought back the races that were originally dropped from the game. Something that was added was a somewhat new concept. It's uh, proficiencies. Now, we've seen this concept expanded on in later editions, but this was really the first time it had been put in the mainstream because it appeared in the player's handbook. It should be noted, though, that skill proficiencies was an optional rule, so they didn't necessarily have to be used in the game. Of course, you can't have a player's handbook without dropping a Dungeon Master's Guide. That book had a cover by the legendary Jeff Easley, whom we discussed a couple weeks ago right here on this program. Counting in at 192 pages, the idea of the second edition DMG was to streamline and better organize the various rules that had come out during the period of first edition, as well as working in the changes made in the second edition player's handbook. Getting into the minutia of changes to the DMG, well, that would be interesting for some listeners, would probably be a slog for most. Just know that any time you either revise the player's handbook or update it, you're probably going to want to do the same thing for the Dungeon Master's Guide. The reasoning for that is, it's simple. The player's handbook gives the players the nuts and bolts of what they can do in creating and playing characters. The Dungeon Master's Guide provides the blueprints for the DM so that all of those nuts and bolts can go into the correct places. However, I do have to note that sometimes reading the Dungeon Master's Guide is a lot like putting furniture together from Ikea. With all due respect to our Swedish listeners, I love the furniture, but those instructions suck to follow sometimes. Just saying. Still love the furniture, and I still love our Swedish listeners. It's all good. Anyway, with the PHP and DMG out of the way, we have to address the final piece of the D&D Trinity. Normally, that would be the Monster Manual. However, for 2nd edition, Zeb Cook and the gang came up with a different idea. Now, for those of you who've played 2nd edition, you know where I'm going, so just humor me for a minute, please. Because for those of you who haven't played, well, let me let me set the stage. Think about the Monster Manual you've used for 3rd edition or 4th edition or 5th edition. I mean, I'm not judging which edition you play. What's the one pain in the ass about them that seems to stand out the most? If you want to share the picture of that monster with your players, you somehow have to fold your book or maneuver it and cover up the statistics and do everything just right so that the players can see the picture. Well, the designers thought about that and said, hey, why not use a big three-ring binder and loose-leaf paper to make our monster deal? And with that, the Monstrous Compendium was born. The first volume was 144 pages, along with colored dividers and a beautiful three-ring binder that had art from Jeff Easley. The idea was that these 144 pages would have all the monsters you'd need to run a campaign. And it was cool. Each page had one monster on it, complete with an illustration and all of the relevant stats. This allowed the DMs to more easily show what their players were playing without risking damage to their book. It also allowed the DM to pull the monsters they'd need for a particular night's game, thereby allowing them to not have to take the entire binder to game night if they didn't want to, or if they didn't have the travel space for it. Now, I said first volume a couple minutes ago. 
Between 1989 and 1993, TSR would crank out 14 more compendiums covering more monsters for the core game, plus monsters for all of the various settings of AD&D. Each of these compendiums had their own binders as well as their own dividers, which meant that in making one component of DMing easier, they just created a new issue. Where the hell were you going to store 15 three-ring binders with about a thousand pages of stuff? I mean, I have friends who took that as a challenge, but they're kind of fanatical about their game stuff. And the first three compendiums were very well reviewed, earning an average of about 8 out of 10 from reviewers. The biggest complaint I saw in the reviews I read was that some of the monsters seemed to be rather repetitive with other systems. Read that to mean not unique to AD&D. The Player's Handbook and Dungeon Master's Guide were also very well reviewed, and all three of these sold quite well, as you would expect. So, we've got the AD&D Trinity out, it got reviewed well, it sold well, show over, right? <laughs> this is AD&D and TSR, so I think you know the answer to that. So remember a little bit ago when I discussed things that were left out of the Player's Handbook for 2nd Edition? Also remember when I said the entire idea of the new books was to simplify and streamline the system? Yeah, that, that didn't last long. As 1989 rolled towards conclusion, TSR decided to begin a line of books that were called the Complete Series. The idea behind these books is that each one would take a class or a race and provide additional information and rules for them. Or, in other words, more stuff you can do. Like I said, so much for simplification. Look, I'm not going to review all the books in the line for this show because, quite frankly, the complete series could actually be an entire show onto itself. I mean, every race, every class... Yeah, they, they got their own book. But I'm going to start with the Complete Fighter's Handbook, which was released in December of 1989. Written by Aaron Alston with artwork by some of TSR's best, including Jeff Easley again, Complete Fighters was 128 pages of new subclasses, skill ideas, and most importantly to the history of AD&D D&D, the concept of the character kit, or template for use in the game. The character template is something that survives in the game to this very day, but most of us can trace the origins of it back to this book. Now, what's a character template? Well, open up your player's handbook of 3rd edition or later and take a look at a class. Siric gives you suggestions about how to map out your abilities and skills. That's the concept of a template, though in 2nd edition there was a lot more to it. Jolly Blackburn reviewed both Complete Fighters and Complete Thieves in Shaddis number 4. Here's what he had to say. Quote, Both books offer a wealth of information. Are they worth the price? I would have to say it depends on the individual and the campaign he's playing in. If you find yourself playing certain character classes to the exclusion of others, then these books would probably be greatly appreciated. End quote. I should also note that Complete Thieves brought the Assassin back into AD&D, as it was one of the subclasses that that book offered. Okay, so let's leave the Complete series for a minute and get into another big release for 2nd edition. Tome of Magic was dropped in 1991, and it came from the minds of the 2nd edition development team, led by Zeb Cook. Tome of Magic acted as a quasi-complete series book as it brought a number of new subclasses to both the mage and cleric classes, as well as 
86 new wizard spells, 170 new priest spells, and 92 new magical items. For players looking for ways to fine-tune their character with a unique personality and spellcasting, Tome of Magic certainly hit all the right notes. It also brought rules for the Wild Mage, which made for some interesting discussions at character creation time. Now, I personally don't allow wild mages in my party, but that's that's just a personal preference. If you're curious as to why, just read the rules for wild magic in any of the more recent editions, then understand that 2nd edition was wilder and weirder than that. Now, one of the knocks on the new spells in this book were that they could be considered heavy artillery spells. I mean, there were spells that could kill a large number of bad guys at once, incapacitate a large area of individuals, end famine, cure plague. I mean, let's be honest, some of these spells in the wrong hands could give a spellcaster godlike powers. Several reviewers also cautioned against allowing games to turn into powerful slugfests that were possible with some of these new items, urging the GMs to be cautious with these new rules. Regardless of the advice, this book sold extremely well, and it managed to earn itself an update and a reprint for 3rd edition, but that's another show. Next up, we stay in 1991, but get back into the Complete series. The Complete Psionics Handbook was released that year, bringing that system of rules back into the mainstream AD&D game. Originally developed for the Spelljammer setting, that's another show, kids, they were left out of 2nd edition until this release. Steve Winter handled the writing for this, and the book detailed psionics for their potential use in the game. One major change for 2nd edition is that psionics were limited to a single class, the psionicist, which was a new class developed for this book. When psionics were first introduced to the game, any class or race, for the most part, could acquire psionics, but there were restrictions on how powerful they could be and what kind of powers they could have. Lather, rinse, repeat. It should be noted Psionics in 1st edition crashed many a campaign. I don't speak from personal experience, but I do speak from the experience of a guy who's talked to a lot of people who had this happen to him. So, there, there were changes that needed to be made if they were going to stay in the system. Now, this system is a fairly complex one. It relies on powers having scores that apply to character attributes, and you got to make rolls to see if the use was successful and how powerful the success could be. It's a lot of math, and I suck at math, so there you go. Reviews of the game commented that even though the rules better organize psionics, they also made the system a bit more complex. Overall, however, reviewers liked the new rules and gave the book positive reviews overall. To this point, when I've talked about the complete series of books, I've talked about classes. But I also mentioned that races got their own books. I'm not going to get into all of those either, but I did want to call out the Complete Book of Dwarves, which was also released in 1991. Jim Bambra gets the authorship credit, and a crew of illustrators, including Larry Elmore, contributed artwork. The Complete Dwarves book delved into the history of dwarves, including their creation in the D&D world and a bunch of myths surrounding them. It also presented new sub-races of dwarves, new proficiencies, equipment, and new rules for strongholds and campaigns. In other words, this new book provided just about everything you could possibly want in order to play a dwarf in an AD&D campaign. As with the rest of the Complete Series books, it also had templates for dwarf characters, providing a guide for players to use when creating their characters. Just like the rest of the books in the line, it was well-reviewed and it sold quite well. 
Okay, so we've talked about races and classes, but what about gear? I mean, having a really cool character is one thing, but what about armor and weapons and just really cool shit for them to use? Of course they had a book for that. The Arms and Equipment Guide was published in 1991. Written by Grant Bauscher, Troy Christensen, John Pickens, John Tara, and Scott Davis, this book both presented a whole lot of new gear for players to use and also delved into the differences between different types of weapons and armor, explaining why some armors were better for certain things than others. It was one of the first times TSR had actually done something like this, and it wouldn't be the last time that D&D would get a book like this. The reviews were overwhelmingly positive, and much like the other books I've discussed to this point, it flew off the shelves. Alright, so I could stay in 1991 all show long, because I've got some special love for that year, but we need to advance to 1992. 1992 brought the monster mythology to gamers' shelves. Carl Sargent wrote the book, and it was 128 pages long. Now, one might think a monster mythology would get into the mythology of the various monsters in the game. Logical. But one would be wrong if one thought that. The purpose of the monster mythology was to get into the deities and legends of deities of the various non-human races of D&D, which was something that had never really been done before. There were 131 different deities laid out in the book, ranging from the gods of elves and dwarves to the gods of the dragons. The book also provided rules for running priests of these deities in your game. Now, those rules were called out by several reviewers who noted a fear that those types of priests could overpower the game. You noting a theme here? Yeah, we'll get to that in a minute. Other than those concerns, reviews were positive, and again, the book was very popular and it sold well. In 1993, another race-centric book in the Complete series was released, titled The Complete Book of Humanoids. It was written by Bill Slavicek and covered a number of races for players that had typically only been seen as monsters. Bugbears, centaurs, gnolls, goblins, and half-orcs were just four of the humanoid races that were covered in the book. And see, I, I told you, half-orcs were going to find their way back into the game. So for the first time in 2nd edition, there were official rules for playing different types of creatures in the game. The book, as you might expect, had a lot of fans, and the reviews were positive. Most of them noted that even though humanoids that could be exceptionally powerful were brought into the game, they were given equalizers to make them more fair for game use. Some of them got level caps, others got size restrictions. Regardless, care was taken to make sure these new potential characters couldn't unbalance a campaign. In theory. So, what do you do when you're looking for some really interesting items to put in your game? I mean, stuff that reaches the level of an artifact. For TSR, it meant you release an entire book about them. In 1993, Zeb Cook authored The Book of Artifacts. Its 159 pages describe 50 different artifacts that a DM could utilize in their game. The book provides information about the artifact, including its creation story, its purpose, and rules for how it operates. Later in the book, guidelines and rules were provided for DMs so they could create their own artifacts. Now, to be honest, a lot of DMs were already doing this, but this book provided a set of guidelines to use when creating them to kind of streamline the process. It should also be noted that most of the artifacts in this book had previously appeared in various Dragon and Dungeon magazine articles or in campaign materials for other settings of AD&D, such as the Forgotten Realms and Ravenloft. 
The last 1993 item we're going to cover today is the release of the Monstrous Manual. This was TSR's attempt to better simplify the monsters of D&D and put them in one book, as opposed to the 15 different compendiums. Now, not all of the monsters were in the manual, obviously, but the most commonly used ones, along with some special monsters, were included, and the compendiums were then discontinued. Writing credits went to those who had provided the individual material in the previous compendium entries. So as we move to 1995, AD&D saw a lot of changes. First things first, the Player's Handbook and Dungeon Master's Guide both got reprints. The books were beefed up a bit and reorganized, taking some of the materials that had come out in the complete series and in other books and adding them to the core books. And it's funny that they would do this, but at the time they made it a point in the books to note that this is not AD&D 2.5 edition. This is actually just a reprint of second edition. And that's funny because the 3, 3.5 shit, anyway, it's another story. If you get the joke, you get the joke. It loses something if you explain. Next up was the creation of the Player's Option series. From all reports, and frankly from my having owned pretty much every book in second edition at one time or another, the Player's Option series was a revision or reset of the complete series of books that had come out earlier in the decade. First up was Combat and Tactics. Written by L. Richard Baker III and Skip Williams, Combat and Tactics was released in 1995. Combat and Tactics was designed to lay out combat in a manner that would make it feel more realistic. Within its 192 pages, Baker and Williams laid out the process of using grids and miniatures for combat, detailing the different possible tactics that could be utilized within the one-inch squares of a grid. Beyond that, Combat and Tactics also spelled out weapon specialization for 2nd edition, which changed some of the rules in Player's Handbook. It also laid out new rules for unarmed combat, which had been varied throughout the previous books during the 2nd edition. One final thing that Combat and Tactics did goes back to the battle grids. Baker and Williams pulled a bit of miniatures wargaming theory into AD&D, working in rules concerning terrain and weather. Reviews of Combat and Tactics were very positive, with the staff getting kudos for clarifying the concepts of visualization of combat in AD&D, which hadn't been seriously addressed in more than a decade in the game. Skills and Powers was next up on the release schedule. Written by Douglas Niles and Dale Donovan, Skills and Powers followed the formula set by Combat and Tactics. First up was the concept of the Character Point System, which was a way to improve abilities for characters. Next up was a deeper explanation of abilities and ability scores. Racial requirements for each race were also provided in the book, along with details of how the various classes worked within the new system. Weapon and non-weapon proficiencies were addressed in the book as well, and these were quasi-new theories of character and character creation. New schools of magic were presented, as were new rules on psionics. Finally, 30 new character kits were presented in the book. Overall, skills and powers provided players with numerous new options to utilize for character creation, provided the GM allowed it. Reviews of skills and powers were better than the ones for combat and tactics, with an average of about 9.5 out of 10. So, two books down, huge sets of reviews, and two huge sets of profits off the books. How do you top that? How about something for higher level campaigns? Dungeon Master Option High-Level Campaigns was released in 1995. 
Skip Williams was responsible for the 192 pages of optional material for DMs. High-level campaigns covers pretty much everything a DM would need to run a high-level campaign for their players. How to construct adventures, the use of spells and magical items, creation of magical items, conducting magical duels, high-level special spells called Dwomers, high-level character advancement beyond 20th level. Look, if you were going to run a high-level campaign in 2nd edition, Skip put everything you needed in one book. However, a lot of reviewers dumped on it commenting that this book allowed the game to become more powerful than it should, and using this release as an excuse to dog AD&D for becoming overpowered, in their opinions. Alright, this is one of those rare occasions I'm going to put my own two cents in over a reviewer, because I both owned and used this book for quite some time. Could it overpower a campaign? Oh, most definitely. Does it maybe give too many options? Yeah, probably. But, if DMs and players are working together and expectations are laid out and managed, this book allows for options that give players enough choice to be able to make their characters their own. And it would allow for the campaign to last beyond 20th level, which couldn't happen before this. And, despite the reviews, the book sold pretty good. So, there was one more book left in this line, and it came out in 1996. Player's Option, Spells and Magic, was authored by the TSR staff, and much like every other book in this line, it laid out spells and magic in great detail for players and GMs. The first thing it did was get into a deep explanation of spell schools and spheres of magic. It also got into changes to the spell list, and it put some more classes into play. Multiclassing also got attention in this book, explaining how to multiclass with a spellcasting class and make it work. Proficiency's got some love in this book, as did alternative spell systems. And, for the party wizards, spell research and experimentation got a lot of attention. Wizard Towers also got their own write-ups. This book was the must-have for the party spell slinger, and much like the previous three books in this series, it sold quite well. Again, reviews were pretty good, but also again, reviewers questioned the need for many of the rules and options presented. Again, however, players tended not to listen to the reviews because the book sold fairly well. By 1997, new books were, were done because Wizards of the Coast had purchased TSR, so they stopped releasing new stuff. However, reprintings of books that were released before then were still done, though the Wizards logo replaced the TSR logo in a number of cases. Now, before we wrap, I wanted to note that while we covered a ton of material today, you might notice we avoided setting specific stuff. There's several reasons for that. First off, at this point we're 15 and a half pages and about 4,300 words in, which is a bit longer than I've been going lately. Second, we've already done a deep dive on the Forgotten Realms, so I didn't really want to repeat that. Third, I intend to give the other settings their own love in a future episode or two, so we'll talk about all those books when we do that. And with that, we come to the end of today's tour. Next week, we're devoting the show to an exploration of superhero role-playing games. But remember what we learned from The Incredibles. No capes. Alright, so before I get into the wrap-up today, I wanted to take a minute to ask for a personal favor, if I may. A young man that I've known his entire life is getting ready to start his Boy Scout Eagle project, and he needs to raise about 600 bucks so he can get the materials that he needs so that he can do this job the way he sees it in his head. 
Now, this young man's name is Aniston Box. I've uh, I've known his dad for God, 35 years. I've known his mom for like 25 years. Aniston also happens to be one of the gamers at my table. So even if I didn't think of him like he was one of my kids, I'd still think of him as one of my kids and I'd want to do this for him. If you understand anything about the Boy Scouts, you understand what an honor it is to rise to the rank of Eagle Scout. And this project is the last thing that he needs to finish so that he can achieve that honor. So I'm asking folks to check out the GoFundMe for this project. You can head over to GoFundMe.com and check it out. It's titled, Help Aniston Box Fund His Eagle Project. Now, I know some of you might be a little leery of GoFundMe. I get it. So am I. But I can assure you that in this case, your money will be going exactly where we're telling you it's going. I did a tweet about that on the Role Playing History Twitter account. I will be uh, setting the link on the Facebook page as well. So if you missed it, if you missed getting it here, didn't write fast enough, no problem. Just check it out. Of course, you know, you can hit that back button and back up a few seconds and catch it again. Anyway, I wanted to thank you in advance for helping this kiddo out because he really is a good kid and I want to see him, I want to see him achieve this goal. Okay, so the music we use on the show comes from Pixabay.com. Check them out for royalty-free music for your next project. You can check out the show on Facebook, Role Playing History Podcast, Twitter, at Role Playing P, YouTube, it's Role Playing History Podcast, blah, 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 things, show, subscribe, blah. <laughs> the email address, roleplayinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. All right, kids, next week, it's all about the superheroes. Up, up, and away it is then. But <laughs> that's next week. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis, and you're 